the word of our Lord from the epistle to the Colossians. Paul says, Since the day we heard of it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the fullness or with knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the first fruit from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Lord, would you bless the reading of your word to our hearts, to our minds, to the entirety of our lives. May we be transformed through your word and may you bless our hearing of it. Lord, lead and guide us into your truth, through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. What is joy? Paul, you might not have noticed it, tucks that tiny little three-letter word into this complex and glorious passage about what God has done through His Son to redeem us. He says that He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His glorious light, that He has made us new. He has forgiven our sins. We have new life in Jesus. All things have become new in Him. He has delivered us. He has brought us close. He has redeemed us through the blood of His Son, who Paul says is the image of the invisible God. He is what is to be seen of the God who can't be seen. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is Lord of all, inheriting all of creation because of who He is as the eternal Son who became incarnate and laid down His life to redeem creation. But Paul says that, that all things have been created by Him And all things have been potentially redeemed by Him. And He calls us, therefore, to walk worthy of the Lord. He says that it is possible to walk so worthy of the Lord that we can fully please Him. That we can be fruitful in every good work. 
and that we can increase in the knowledge of God. But in verse 11, notice what he then says. That tiny little word is tucked in there. Strengthened with all might, Paul is praying for us, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering, and there it is, with joy. Joy is part of the Christian life. It is an intended part of the Christian experience. To live with joy. And joy is not just happy-go-luckiness. Paul is writing as one who is in chains, imprisoned. In fact, he ends his epistle to the Colossians in that final verse of that final chapter saying, Remember my chains. Notice that when Paul talks about joy here in verse 11 of chapter 1, he calls us to patience and long-suffering, but it's with joy. And so what is joy? It's a hard thing to define. We know it when we see it, and we know it when we have it. It's like happiness, but more. It's like contentment, but more. We can't quite get our heads around what joy is. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book on it, his autobiography, and he titled it Surprised by Joy, telling the story of his life as one who knew what joy was as a young child and then had his joy ripped out of his life and knew only pain and suffering and anger and cynicism and bitterness. But along the journey of life began to be reminded of what joy once was. He actually married a girl named Joy, but the book isn't about her. In fact, it's written before her. We know this. We were made for joy. The final and ultimate source of joy is the triune God. He is Himself fully joyful. And to know Him is to have what Peter calls joy inexpressible and full of glory. In Galatians Paul offers a list of what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, which begins with love, joy, and peace. This list of fruit isn't, it's not compartmentalized. It's not separated as though you can have one without the other. They all go together like a fruit salad. One of the soft, syrupy kinds of fruit salad, not the clean, neat kind. You get some of it, you got a little bit of all of it. The Spirit's fruit is interwoven and from the Spirit's fruit in our life, that is the fruit that the Spirit of God is producing in our lives, from that, a virtuous life springs. 
A life lived in the grace of the Holy Spirit. In fact, from this fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives springs a virtuous family. And even virtuous community and virtuous culture. If we're talking about redeeming the culture, if we're talking about bringing the light of the gospel into a darkened community, then we've got to talk about being a different kind of person. And a joyful person is a different kind of person today. Last week we looked at love in the context of the local church body, a different kind of family that God is creating as communities of believers come together to live together, to love together, and to follow Jesus together. Today we're looking at joy in the context of a different kind of life, a different kind of person. Paul said in his epistle to the Ephesians that one of the benefits of the local church is the opportunity for the building up of believers in Jesus to what he calls the perfect man or the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Paul said. Later on in this epistle to the Colossians, from which we've read this morning, Paul says this. He urges the Colossians to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Notice the importance of thanksgiving in the life of the believer in Paul's epistles. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Now think about that just for a moment. Paul is is inviting the Colossians to be thankful with him and to participate in ministry with him. And he says in the same breath, for this purpose, I'm in chains. What's Paul got to be thankful for? Why is Paul concerned with ministering to others? He's in prison. It's like he's from a different world. It's like he's living in a different reality. And perhaps he is from a different world. Perhaps he is living in a different reality. But Paul continues on inviting the Colossians to be praying for him. To be filled with thanksgiving and to to pray for him in ministry. He says that I may make it manifest. That is the mystery of the gospel. As I ought to speak. And then he encourages them. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside the world. Those outside of the life-giving presence of God's Spirit in the church. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer 
each one. Twice Paul here in this short, almost closing passage in Colossians 4 uses that term ought. He uses it of himself and he uses it of the Colossians. And in both contexts, he is talking about how we ought to live before the world. How we ought to be different in the eyes of the world. How salt is different. How the grace of God in our lives is different. How being truly thankful, even in the midst of adversity, is truly different. Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A few weeks back, I noted in a sermon that folks seem to be so angry lately. We live in a world that is, that is almost foaming at the mouth daily. Folks are frustrated and aggravated, bitter. One of the things I always ask my class at the end of a lecture is, any questions, comments, or snide remarks? And I always get a little chuckle out of it. It's one of those, I picked it up in college, I think, maybe, maybe even high school. I don't know. It's, it's some weird thing that teachers do, I guess. But um, it seems like the world is filled with snide remarks. Everyone's got something snarky to say. Don't get me wrong. I like a little bit of snark. But it does seem like everyone is so angry. That is the norm to be dismissive, to be judgmental, to be cynical, constantly skeptical, and not just that, but rude about it. That is normal life nowadays. That's being in the in crowd. Now, in light of that, allow a, a simple mantra to dance around in your mind this morning. And hopefully this afternoon and then tomorrow and you see where I'm going on into the next. A simple, simple little mantra. Let this dance around in your head. Out with the bad, in with the good. You know it. You've probably heard it a hundred times. Half those times probably been from me. Out with the bad, in with the good. Out with the bad, in with the good. John Wesley spoke of Breathing in grace so that we might breathe out praise. My theology professor in college, Dr. Lorstorfer, calls this spiritual reciprocity. Breathing in grace, breathing out praise. Breathing out a life of joy. A life filled with the goodness of God's Spirit. Dr. Lorstorfer actually just recently wrote a book. I feel weird calling him. I've always known him as Brother Chris. Uh, he recently wrote a book called Spiritual Reciprocity about this idea. But joy is a foundational characteristic of the Christian life. It's not an add-on. It's not for the elite. It's not for the really good, solid Christians. It is, it is not expected of some of us. It's expected of all of us who know and love the living God. For He is pure joy. To know Him is to know joy. 
Joy is the wellspring of victorious Christian living. It is the heartbeat of pure Christian love. That being so, we must keep in mind that joy is not just a cover for us. It comes from the depths within. You've seen people who are falsely joyful. People who always have a smile on their face just because they're supposed to have a smile on their face. Who you never see frustrated. Who you never see discouraged. Typically, maybe not always, but typically, that's fake. But there are some things that we can do to produce joy in our lives, or better yet, to create the conditions for which God to produce joy in our lives. That being so, we ought to find ourselves caught up and having our minds occupied by an all-important question. If we're going to live as different people, a different kind of person in the world, so as to be a, 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 a point of redemption in the world... We ought to be asking, well, what can I do to become more joyful? I may not be able to just put it on or decide to have it, but what can I do to create the conditions in my life to become more joyful? What are some things that I can put into my life and my heart that will spring forth joy if out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? In his epistle to the Philippians, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, there it is again, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Finally, brethren, family, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, here Paul is trying to get quite practical. Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Marinade in them. Marinate in them. Marinade is the thing. Marinate is the activity which makes a good meal. Meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice Paul is directing as he invites us, as he invites the Philippians to rejoice with him, to be thankful, to have the joy of God in them. He invites them to avoid things that would contaminate, be anxious for nothing. And he invites them to put into their lives things which would produce joy. Prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, making our request known to God, seeking His peace and Focusing and meditating in our lives on truth and nobility and justice and purity, loveliness, good reportedness, 
virtuousness and praiseworthiness. All those things. Please, let me, let me be as practical here as I can possibly be. I want to not just throw out some suggestions and some good ideas, but I want to really offer you some promises in a, in a pastoral sense. I want to offer you some promises of what we need a bit less of in our lives and what we need a bit more of in our lives if we're going to be a different kind of person. If we're thinking about being light in darkness, if we're thinking about transforming culture, if we're thinking about returning to the Lord and rebuilding what has been devastated, these are some fantastic places to start. Our lives need more art, less entertainment. There is a difference. What do you mean art? You mean paintings? Yes, perhaps. But books, good books, great books. I remember Dennis Kenlaw said, don't read good books. There are too many good books. Read the best books. And read the best of the best more than once. We need more art, more music, beautiful music. Something that inspires, not something that numbs. Entertainment is about just simply escaping and being numb for a while. The best art is quite entertaining, but it's not mere entertainment. And we need more art and less entertainment. Too many of us in our culture spend too many hours, not just every week, but every day, simply being entertained. It's endless. It never stops. We are a world consumed with being entertained, with having our imaginations petted for a while rather than having our imaginations strengthened and emboldened. And so that's a good place to start. In fact, in the world outside of these walls is a pretty good artistic place to wander. I was going to say, if you haven't been to an art museum in a while, you might want to check that out. But actually, if you haven't been on a walk in a while, start there. Because what you'll see is past the houses and the sculptured yards is the beauty of God's creation. His masterpiece. Our lives need more faces and less screens. The more screen time you would say enjoy, but the more screen time you endure, expose yourself to each week, the less happy you'll be. I saw a, um, I heard just the other day, on average, people spend 282 minutes per day on this little guy, a smartphone. 
the new iPhone is being rolled out and everybody's going crazy about it. And the irony of it is it's got the face recognition software, but what smartphones and other screened devices, TVs included, do is they pull us away from real faces. They connect us and said to digital faces, to digital friendships, to digital acquaintances. And these screens might be a necessary part of our lives these days because of the culture in which we live. But I want to encourage you to, 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 to get more faces in your life and less screens. Faces, persons. It's interesting that uh, the word person in Latin is persona. That's where we get the word, persona. But that's a the- theatrical term, and it means literally a mask. So you can put on a mask and be one person in this context, and you can put on a different mask and be a different person in this other context. But the Greek, turd, uh, the, the, the Greek term for person is prosopon. Face. And it's related actually to the term for prayer. You need more real people in life, more time spent with the real people around you. I need that. Perhaps we need to create holy places in our lives and Holy times in our lives. You know, holy places and holy times are a very biblical context. Perhaps our, our dinner tables need to be holy places where the screens aren't allowed, where it's nothing but faces and conversation. On that note, We need more visiting and less debating. Most of us who debate with others aren't even good at debating. I don't know why we think we're we're like rhetorical geniuses and we're going to convince the world that it's all really simple. You ought to all just agree with me. This makes perfect sense. And not that debating is a bad thing. Not that there's no room for debating. And I thought about using that, uh, that idea of com- conversing or having conversations, but then I thought, no, because that's what everyone's talking about. We need to have a national conversation. We need to have a community conversation. No, we need to spend time visiting with one another. Having conversation is part of visiting, but so is laughing. So is sharing. So is cooking and eating. That's all tied up in this idea of visiting. I have a feeling that if we were to put this into practice, we'd be happier people, more joyful people, more contented people. We need more silence, less noise. Notice I said noise. I didn't say sound. I already encourage you to listen to good music. 
But we do need periods in our lives where we have silence, where we're not just filling the room with noise, where we're not just filling our ears with something to be heard, but where we can listen and reflect. Where we simply pull back from the noise and enjoy time with God, enjoy time in His world, enjoy time with others without having to be the one to say something. But where we enjoy the silence. You know, silence can be kind of awkward. You see? It can be kind of weird. But silence is sometimes good for us. Silence trains our ears and our minds to appreciate good things when they are heard, when they are experienced. We need more giving and less spending. It was Jesus, according to Paul in the book of Acts, it was Jesus who said, it is better to give than to receive. And spending is even worse than receiving because spending is about receiving from myself, consuming. You know, one of the tragedies of our culture is that we have reduced humanity to mere consumers. We don't live among people. We live among leeches whose sole purpose in life is simply to consume, to absorb, to get, to pile up. We've got more toys than we know what to do with. We've got more things, more stuff in our lives than we have joy for. And Jesus told us correctly and very wisely, it is better to give. The more generous, the more gracious we'll be. The more joy we'll have, the more we learn to give to needs and give away. In fact, the the terms uh, grace and gift in the New Testament, in, in the Greek language, are related to one another. They are interwoven together. Grace is about giving. Graciousness is about giving. Generosity produces joy in our lives. And we need more humility. Less pride. It's hard to be joyful when you're prideful. It's one of those weird conundrums of human life. Because we think, oh, joy, it's related to 
having. It's, it's related to contentedness and satisfaction. And, you know, the proud person thinks he's satisfied and thinks he's contented and he has all he needs. But the opposite is actually the truth. Those who are proud, those who are arrogant, those who think they know it all and think they have it all and think that they're always right, they can't enjoy life. Sure, they might be able to be happy for a bit. They might be able to have a little bit more for a bit. But humility in the economy of God produces joy. It is those who are hungry who are blessed, Jesus said. Those who are thirsty who are joyful, Jesus said. For they're filled by God. You remember the Scriptures tell us, humble yourself in the sight of God and He will lift you up, but He will strike down the proud. To humble ourselves, to live a life of humility, to empty ourselves of our pride, whether it would be pride of person or even pride of faith, thinking we've got our relationship with God together and others are missing it. Humility is about emptying one's heart so that God might fill it with His joy. And so we need more of it. And part of that is about needing more submission and less insistence. And you know what I mean by insistence. Insisting upon our way. Even when sometimes our way might be a better way, sometimes we simply need to learn the joy of submitting ourselves. deferring to one another. That's what love is about. It is about learning to defer. Learning to live for the sake of another. And we practice this submission in the context of family and marriage. We practice this submission in the context of friendships. Where things don't have to be our way. Where things don't have to be as we want. And we learn in the context of church. Where things might not always be as what would please us. What would make us happy. But when we release ourselves to God and say, Lord, in practice of submission to you, I choose to submit myself to others to neglect insisting on my way. The Lord is able to fill our hearts with His joy. And lastly, and this is the one that's going to frustrate you all, so you've been warned. We need more religion and less leisure. I said it's going to frustrate you just because of that word religion. I know, I know, I know. Religion is now a bad word, even among Christians. But seriously, what else would you call Scripture reading and prayer and corporate worship and ministry? It's religion. It's about seeing an order to reality that God Himself has defined, that He has revealed to us, and that He invites us to participate in. 
But too many of us are spending too much time just leisuring around, doing whatever we want. And God invites us to Himself. Not primarily out there. I know we can connect with God in nature. I know that we can connect with God. I just encourage you to be around art, and particularly outside art. But God primarily connects with us in here. Not just in this sanctuary, but in the hearness of His Word and prayer and Christian fellowship and worshiping together. It's football season and there's an awful lot of leisure to be had. I feel, I, sometimes I feel guilty because every Sunday for the last few weeks, Bill and Andrew and I, and normally Jeremy's part of it, we stand back there in that corner and we talk about football and, and, and knowing what happened in the games is like, good grief, have I been like watching 12 hours of football? I mean, 12 hours would only be four games. But I know about, you know, eight or nine of them at least. But, you know, you see the highlights and whatnot. So it helps you be a man and be able to talk with other men about the game and whatnot. And you don't want, you know, to not know what's going on. There's an awful lot of opportunity for leisure. And I'm not saying we should have no leisure. There should be times where we rest. But let me encourage you, if you've got family, if you can convince them, watch the game with family. But surely, we can all look into our lives and see how much time is wasted just having fun, just checking out, just spending me time. And typically, our leisure is strictly that. It is me time. Where there are no faces, there are only screens. Where there is no visiting, there's just me. But God invites us to be different people and He invites us into the means of His grace. The church being included. I came across a quote this week and I want to share with you. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Christians are most winsome when they are most joyful. They are most joyful when they are most different. These challenges I've laid out before us today will surely make us quite different than everyone else. <clears throat> to live like this, to live with this kind of opportunity for joy in our lives is quite subversive and quite countercultural and quite redemptive in an angry world. Let's be different.
Let's together be joyful.